you know, I'm going to homeschool my kids. Oh my gosh, you don't want them to grow up to be socially well-adjusted? Are are your kids growing up to be socially well-adjusted? Like when, when I see the, the kids, you know, who, who go to the classroom with the cat ears, you know, and, and identify as a cat and just meow on the floor, you know, on like TikTok channels or whatever. Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview. And welcome, friends, to Outstanding. This is where we have critical conversations about the news of the day and the ideas that shape us. And the goal, as always, is to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I'm your host, Joseph Backholm, and we are in August. And this means that all across America, students are going back to school or they're getting ready to go back to school. And it begs the question, is this even a good thing? It might seem like a silly question, but let's go back a bit if we can. Back in episode 20, we talked about Gen Z and we talked to a couple members of Generation Z and the fact that they are the least patriotic, least religious, and most depressed generation since these things were being measured or have been measured. Now, children spend 16,000 hours in classrooms between kindergarten and 12th grade. We have to assume that the education system our young people are exposed to is part of what's shaping them in a very concerning direction and turning out results that is frankly not good for the young people who are being influenced. Lots of factors, of course. Then there's higher education. Universities are dedicated these days to creating safe spaces where students are protected from ideas they might disagree with. And then when people say things that they disagree with, they become unhinged. Lots of examples of this, but the one I'll reference right now, the students at Stanford Law School protested a sitting federal judge so aggressively that he was unable to finish making a presentation. They can't just abide the fact that somebody in a room somewhere is saying things that they might disagree with. Now, of course, ideological diversity at most universities is non-existent. A study by the National Association of Scholars Fund found that American professors donate to Democrats instead of Republicans by a 95 to 1 ratio. Well, and then there's the whole issue of higher education not teaching things that are really important for people to know. A 2018 Pew Research study found that 39% of college graduates in America could not identify the three branches of government. A 2020 study by the Intercollegiate Studies Institute found that 33% of college graduates, only 33% of college graduates could correctly name the first 10 amendments to the United States Constitution. And that's the Bill of Rights. Not that they had the name all 10 in order. They just couldn't identify that the first 10 amendments were called the Bill of Rights. And then a 2021 study by the National Constitution Center found that only 23% of college graduates in America could identify the purpose of the Electoral College. This is all bad news, but you will be relieved to know that all of them knew that there were 9,345 genders. Actually, I made that part up. But what's the response to all of this? Should we just retreat to our bunkers? Should we all homeschool? Should we build new schools? Should we just wage angry keyboard warfare against all the wokeness? Joining me now to discuss all of this is one of the newest members to the Washington Stand team, Sam McCarthy. Welcome to Outstanding. Thanks very much for having me, Joseph. It's good to be on. 
Well, it, it's good to have you uh, as one of the newest members, and I think this is your first time on Outstanding. If you can, uh, introduce yourself a bit uh, to the audience here, and specifically as it pertains to uh, your experience and your interest in education, which is really what we're going to talk about today. Absolutely. So I'm, uh, as you mentioned, I'm the newest member for the Washington Stand. I'm a news writer here. I've been published by other publications like the American Spectator, Real Clear Investigations, and Crisis Magazine uh, before starting what may or may not be described as my illustrious career in journalism. Uh, I was an educator. I served as a teacher for sixth grade boys at a Catholic private school. Uh, and I was pursuing at the time uh, the idea of becoming a college professor, uh, teaching literature. I designed the literature curriculum for my students. Yeah, I, I just want to say kudos to you um, as someone who has someone who just finished being a sixth grade boy and is about to become a seventh grade boy. Uh, that is uh, that is saintly work that you are doing, managing sixth grade boys. So good for you, but uh, continue. It Keep going. It's a tall order. And they, it really I, is. And a smelly order. It can be. Yeah. And they, there's a especially as a teacher, you know, there's a degree of, you know, I don't want to say familiarity, you know, but you, you want your, your students to like you at the same time while respecting you, which can be a, a fine line to tread sometimes, especially when you, you do work in a small private Catholic school that, you know, isn't necessarily overstaffed per se. And uh, you find yourself in need of, uh, 15 minute bathroom break in the middle of the day because you've been teaching nonstop. And so you have to have another teacher watch and the boys make comments on the length of time that you were in the bathroom when you come back. It's a fine line to walk, you know? Oh, so, sixth grade um, boys, there is nothing that sixth grade boys do not make comments about, especially yeah. when they are together. The, the temptation is is strong when they are alone and in my case with their sisters or just with their family at dinner when they are in a group <laughs> that temptation in my experience is absolutely irresistible and so everything every thought that goes through their mind very quickly exits through their mouth comes out their in, mouth yes yep. exactly so, exactly good for you there's a, a comedian named uh john mulaney who makes the joke that middle schoolers he says will uh he says, middle schoolers are the most vicious people ever because they'll make fun of you, but in an accurate way. They'll pick the thing about you that you don't like about you, and they'll make fun of you for it. And 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 we all, and I think it's probably true, and there's, I mean, this is not like a psychology segment, but we all carry that around <laughs> because everybody has been a middle yeah. schooler. And, and I think it is probably universally true that all of us can recall some comment made to us at that moment of our lives, that stage of our lives, that we carry with us, that we are still kind of, um, you know, responding to protecting ourselves from um, trying to, you know, defend in, in in some ways. So yeah, those are formative years. I mean, that's, that's a great way of saying it, the cruelest people, <laughs> because they will attack you in the most accurate way possible. Find your greatest insecurity and just stick a finger in it and then poke it around for a while. Vicious and creative. Yes. But I mean, you, you've been a teacher and uh, you've, have you taught only in um, private schools? Is that correct? Uh, I have. I've taught only in private schools. I taught in a private Catholic school for a while and I taught in an interdenominational school for a while before that. 
I've taught a, a number of subjects, everything from, like I said, I designed a literature curriculum for my sixth graders. Uh, I taught everything, literature, history, uh, logic, civics. You were talking about, you know, people not being able to identify the Bill of Rights. And I had my sixth grade students, I had them write essays. Everybody picked uh, one of the amendments in the Bill of Rights and wrote a short one page essay on it, uh, which we sent to uh, an essay contest. And um, one of my students was a finalist. So I guess I did my job well. I'm sure that you did. Um, what is your assessment? I mean, based on your your teaching experience and now you just, you think about and you pontificate on the state of higher education amongst other things. What is your prevailing thought about the state of education in America? The state of education has, I think, turned into, we used to talk back back in the, the 1980s, in particular, conservatives used to talk about, you know, starting kind of in the 60s with the, the rising threat of communism, but leading up to and kind of uh, peaking, I think, in the 80s, talked about the idea of the nanny state. And I think that we've really seen, especially in the uh, education, we can call it now the education industry, uh, we've really seen this nanny state idea sort of come to fruition. We now have uh, the the state in the form of mostly public schools, but also when you get to higher education, various types of schools, you have the state sort of usurping the role of parents with the parents sort of complicit in it. Uh, partly because the parents went through that program themselves growing up. I, like I said, I, I taught at a Catholic school, and one of my uh, one of my philosophies was from uh, the great Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, a Catholic bishop, uh, very famous as a, an anti-communist writer. Uh, he he wrote a, a great uh, biography of um, Christ, uh, a phenomenal, gifted writer. And Fulton Sheen said that when a child is born, a crown is fashioned for that child in heaven. And woe to the parent who does not raise his or her child with awareness of that crown. And he says that the, the teacher, particularly in the, in the education uh, field, the teacher is supposed to be a cooperator with the parent. The teacher has some of the parent's authority that's derived from the parent. We don't have that anymore. We have, and you can look at, you, you can see uh, in California, for example, they have uh, legislation where they, they're saying that if a, if a child says, I, I identify as transgender, I'm, I was born a boy, but I identify as a girl now. And the mom and dad don't immediately say, oh yes, wonderful. We're going to put you on hormone drugs and, you know, schedule you for a, a, a mutilation surgery. If the parents don't instantly say that, the child can be taken away. Right. So we, we have this, this, and it's spawned beyond just the education field, but it's, it's most notable in the education field. You've got students who aren't being taught to think critically. You've got students who aren't, aren't being taught to think for themselves. They're being given rote memorization and more and more it's become idiot. You know, you've got all, all the, the alphabet mafia is what it, the phrase that I like to use. All of the the rainbow flags, all the teachers have, you know, nose piercings, blue hair, and they're teaching your kindergartners and telling them that there are genders. 
Yeah, there, there's a, there's a lot here that I want to get into with you because you, you mentioned and you, you start talking about the fact that parents are kind of ceding their control uh, to the schools. Mm-hmm. And you say that from a from a perspective of somebody who's taught in private schools. And, and I think we're going to mostly talk about kind of the government school system. But this is an interesting point because we're talking to a lot of parents right now. And my wife is an administrator. She's, a, she's an elementary school principal in the classical school system. So they call her the lower school head. But she has a lot of experience with this as well, where – there is this dynamic in the private school world, which I'm very familiar with, you're very familiar with, where there are a lot of parents who are like, well, I'm going to outsource basically the discipleship and formation of my kid to this Christian school. I'm going to pay a bunch of money. Uh, it's a private school. It's going to be a good one. And, and that idea that you just proposed from the archbishop it's this idea that every child has a crown that's been fitted for them when they're born, and the parent's job is to make them worthy of that crown to help have that happen. Uh, do you agree with kind of the experience that I've had vicariously through my wife and certainly part of private school communities of that there is a segment of the just parental population that is not that interested in parenting, and they really just kind of want somebody else to do that hard work for them? There absolutely is. I, I know for myself, I had a, a pretty small class and a, it was all boys. The school was not an all boys school, but my, my class just happened to be all boys, um, which meant that we could, you know, focus on knights in literature, you know, instead of talking about the princesses, uh, which, you know, I think they appreciate it. But uh, I, I can tell you oh, about 80 percent, three quarters to 80 percent of my class uh, they were there because all the other schools had been shut down during COVID. All the other schools were shut down. And so the, the parents just, they weren't going to take care of their kids. They, the, you had in, for the most part, it was, you know, uh, uh, both parents working, you know, and so the, the parents couldn't, um, but regardless, you have this, this situation. And I, I had, uh, a couple of students, you know, who, who were very in touch with, uh, what we'll call the the mainstream culture and would reference, you know, YouTubers that they would watch who are, you know, men who do makeup tutorials um, using glitter and things of that sort. And I, I had to, you know, ban that kind of talk in the in the classroom and tell the students, no, 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 you, you don't, you're all boys. You don't refer to each other as sista. You're, you're men. Okay. You're, you're growing into young men. Knock, knock it off. At a, a parent complain um, to my my administrator, my principal, um, uh, and saying that you know he, your your teacher is banning them from talking about YouTube shows in the classroom, and I explained which YouTube shows were being you know mention of was being banned. My administrator instantly said, "Oh well, yeah, I'm with you on this one. Uh, that's that's unacceptable," yeah. and told the parent the same thing. And the parent said, "Oh my gosh." I had no idea he, he even was watching any of that. So you, you've got parents who, who aren't aren't in touch with what their kids are, are doing, what their kids are learning. And that brings up another really interesting point, because, um, you know, I, I've said it in the past this way that a lot there's a lot of children being parented by the Internet. 
which I think is, yeah. is true, but it's also a function of the fact that if you give your kids access to technology, it's not realistic that you're going to be looking over their shoulder every time. So you see what they are no. consuming um, when they have access to the technology that um, that that's an inevitable result. Curiously, and I'm going to get your reaction to this, and it's a slight deviation from the primary topic today, but I don't agree with the UN about much. But they just released a report in the last week calling for all schools globally to go phone free. And they think this would improve academic uh, performance. They think it would eliminate a lot of cyberbullying that takes place in schools. Of course, you can cyberbully presumably outside of school hours. What's your reaction to that? I think that's, a, a, for the most part, a great idea. I don't think that kids should be using phones in school anyway. Uh, I went to a, a private classical school growing up, you know, for, for high school. I was homeschooled up until then, uh, you know, shout out to my mom. Um, but I, I went to a, a private classical school for high school and it, nobody, nobody would have, would have a, a phone. I didn't even have a cell phone at that age. Uh, my parents would give me a flip phone if I'm going away, like for a, a retreat for the weekend or something, or if I'm staying the weekend at a friend's house, I get a flip phone and they, they'd pay for like three days of texting. on it. But uh, I didn't have a, a phone. I couldn't even take my iPod out of my pocket unless I was on lunch break, you know? Uh, so I, I, I think that it's sort of a return to basics in some ways, but I think that the, the chief issue, like you, like you just mentioned, you know, presumably you could cyber bully outside of classroom hours. Like that's the chief issue. And the, the cyber bullying isn't even the main thing. I think that you've got, the influence of of moral degeneracy is the main thing with, first of all, just the ease of access that you have now with internet pornography is just corrupting. It's already corrupted generations. You know, I mean, a lot of what we see out there in the culture, you can trace it back to uh, as far as moral degeneracy, you can trace it back to pornography uh the just the the onslaught of that i think that really what has to happen is for parents to you know just like they would in the classroom just like they should in the classroom and just like we're seeing in some cases you know parents really need to step up and reclaim their role you know live mm -hmm. up to the responsibility that they've been given to take care of these immortal souls yeah i think that's a really good point because uh in it when we criticize the government system. It's often like this. Oh, the government system's bad. And it certainly has challenges. Though I am a product mm -hmm. of public education. I graduated from a public high school, um, you know, way back in the dark ages of the 90s. Uh, and, but, but the solution to that is not just simply getting your kid out of a government school. You've got to have something better. There are a lot of private schools that are just as, you know, degenerate as government schools, and they just happen to have all come from families with a lot of money and they pay to go to private schools. And, and so this, this should not be a government school versus private school conversation, government school bad, mm -hmm. public school good. I actually know some government schools in small town America still that are um, better than most Christian schools in America, just because of the people yeah. who lead them and the standards that they have and the culture that has been created there. So that's not the right dichotomy. It really has to be as parents. Am I sending my 
child to an environment where they are going to be formed, shaped, discipled, and loved in a way that they are going to learn to love the right things, where they are going to love to mm-hmm. um, appreciate and value the right things, where the things that should be normal are normal, where they don't develop an appetite and a taste and a tolerance for things that should not be tolerated and are unacceptable and are going to essentially make them worse people. And I mean, there is yeah. in broad strokes, the government school system is is challenged, but it's there's there's exceptions to that rule. And, and by far the answer oh, yeah. is not, oh, just get them into a private school because then everything's going to be better because that's not the reality. If the parent is not the primary discipler uh, in formation, uh, it's not going to work anyway. You can pay however much you want in tuition. And if mom and dad are not living it out, reinforcing it at home, setting the standard at home, it, it in it's not irrelevant what's happening in the classroom, but you cannot overcome negligent parenting with really good teaching. Yeah, you touched on a, a what I think is a, a crucial aspect of anything if you're talking about education as a philosophy. You know, uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Abolition of Man, talks about education and he talks that he looks at uh sort of what we would call uh morally relativistic uh textbook you know which talks about uh somebody describes in a poem a waterfall as sublime and the authors of this textbook say no no no, no. the waterfall is not sublime what the person's talking about is his own feelings and lewis uses that of course as a springboard into this whole world of moral relativism in education and what that yields and he says that essentially education is conditioning and there's you know this recently resurfaced adage you know teach your children to be men you know teach your sons to be men teach your your daughters to be women before somebody else teaches them to be something else because there is this you can call it a, a vacuum if you want to your your kids need to be formed. They need to be shaped. They need to be taught. There's a, a vacuum, an intellectual and to a certain extent, a moral vacuum that needs to be filled. And if you yeah. as the parent are not filling it, somebody else is going to fill it and they're not going to fill it with something that you, that you would choose to fill it with. So you have a responsibility, you know, like you were saying, yeah, it's not necessarily government school versus private school. Yeah. One of my favorite ways to illustrate this point is I've I've heard it described as a as a cucumber being pickled, and yeah. the brine the 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 flavor of the brine that you sit in is going to determine the flavor of the pickle. And in this analogy, of course, the child is the is the cucumber that's going to be pickled. And if you place it for 16,000 hours inside a brine of disrespect, carnality, bitterness, self-centeredness, you are going to end up with a self-centered, bitter pickle. That's just what you're going to get because that's the nature of things. And so it's not even curriculum related. It's the fact that we absorb culture. We absorb values, we absorb loves, and we as parents have to be so, and frankly, for ourselves as well as our children. And, and this is also true. This goes to the, the the kind of entertainment that we consume, the people that we surround ourselves with personally, the kind of church community that we're in, the people who are in our inner circle of life. 
What are we absorbing from them? What flavor are they giving off that we are that we're picking up? That's going to define in large part uh, who we are. And so it's the culture of the environment as much as it is uh, the the curriculum itself. Um, Sam, I, I think I also want to get into some of this higher ed stuff and in as a way of transitioning, um, you know, there are concerns about lower education. We hear about all of these, you know, we hear about pride parades being held in elementary schools led by teachers and these poor little six and seven year olds who really don't know what they're doing. They're just trying to please their teacher and they're being marched around, uh, but certainly toward a particular value system. I talked at the top of the show about some of the challenges in universities where you have young adults and they are young adults who are completely intolerant of just respectful communication about ideas that they might not initially agree with. Not only is their mind not open enough to give a hearing to someone else's perspective that they, you know, like a toddler, shout, berate, and scream down people who um, say the wrong things. This might be a difficult question to answer, but which system is facing the biggest challenge right now? Is it higher education or is it lower education? I think I think the two are are intertwined. I, I think that the the problems in the one, namely lower education, stem from the problems in higher education. It's sort of uh, you can call it trickle down degeneracy. You know, you have higher education. It, it, historically, if you look, higher education was infiltrated by communist Marxists back in the 30s in the U.S. You had uh, Stalin, Joseph Stalin, put together the Frankfurt School which was a, a group of the, these Marxist intellectual influencers. And they, they went to U.S. universities and started teaching Marxist ideology, Marxist thought, Marxist cultural thought, which resulted in things like, you know, like rampant feminism. That's you can, to a certain extent, you can look at the abortion battle, for instance, and find it linked to, if not stemming from, the Frankfurt School and their influence in higher education. They took over the Ivy League by the time that Joseph McCarthy started looking at, you know, finding out where the communists are. They had already taken over the Ivy League at that point. So from that point, it just trickles down. Because the higher ed trains the teachers in the lower ed, right? Is that exactly is that what you you're referring to? Who, yeah, you've got the people who who you know graduated from college, you know, say. Uh, whatever, eight years ago, you know, with a degree in education and they got certified from the state and everything, and they're now teaching in public schools. They've now had, you know, eight years worth of students coming through that they're giving their ideology to, that they're training the way that they were trained to train them. I know that sounds convoluted, but the, they're training now these other kids to go on and do the same thing that they did to go to college, to, you know, smoke pot, you know, sleep around. Yeah. And engage in all these things, you know, show up at the the big abortion protest thing when Matt Walsh comes to the university to speak or something like that, you know. Um, and so they're shaping now the next generations and it's just going to keep proliferating. In the corporate context, they refer to this as training the trainer. But we don't often mm -hmm. see the education programs in higher ed as examples of training the trainer. And that's really what's going on is that mm -hmm. you you are training the people who are going to go train the four, five, six, seven-year-olds to make sure they know, under, and at this point, the points of emphasis are things like make sure boys 
know that they can be girls if they if they want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Do you have a favorite reform to this system? What changes would you like to see from a policy level? I I personally, I think that the at present at any rate, I think that the system is corroded enough on a on a general scale as as you had mentioned there are exceptions of course you know everywhere in public and private school there are exceptions but i think that the system is broadly speaking corroded enough that for the time being homeschooling i think is really just the best option that's that's available you know if you can find a a great uh you know christian conservative community you know that that maybe has its own private school if you can find maybe a, a homeschool co-op, you know, where you have like uh, maybe two to three days a week, you know, you have uh, special classes and you do have like people who are actually educated in that field, you know, teaching on the subject. But I, I personally, I just think that the, the best response for the present moment is homeschooling. Uh, you have complete oversight over what your, your children are doing, what they're learning. It, even homeschooling, you know, there's there's still avenues that 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 cultural decay seeps in, you know, and can kind of get in get in the little chinks in the armor, so to speak. Um, do you fear accusations when when that's your response to this? What do you say to those who are like, well, we can't retreat, we can't retreat from the world, um, we we have to be in the world, we have to, but not of the world, and and certainly that's what you're you're getting at. But do you have any um fear of kind of this retreatist mentality where we just kind of withdraw from society as it exists and therefore become irrelevant to it not necessarily i don't think of it first of all as withdrawing from society you're withdrawing your children from society and placing them under your own care uh, in order to form them properly to go out into society and to actually have an impact and make a change in the right way um, I'm I'm a big advocate of legislating Christian morality, which, is, you know, if you can take over your school board and start doing that, that's great. But by and large, you can't really do that. There are still sort of checks and balances in place, you know, and once a certain sort of vacuous ideology is accepted, you know, that says, no, wait, this needs to remain a vacuum. It's not so much retreat. It's you're always going to be fighting. Because you do, you do have this mindset that no, you know, this has to remain a vacuum. This has to remain, you know, if we can't bring our morals into it, then you can't either. Somebody's going to bring their morals into it. We see this time yeah, and Sam, time again because there's one I, I want to jump in here yeah. and and defend you a little bit because I know that you just triggered a significant number of people when you said I'm a big advocate of legislating Christian morality. And for those who are triggered by that, because you said that with confidence and not the appropriate kind of hushed tones that somebody might expect to hear a statement like that said with. So for those who were triggered by that, the the important point to make, and and, and Sam certainly did, was getting there, uh, but I want to put a finger on it, is the reality that all legislation is moral legislation, that the world in which morality is not being legislated does not exist. Those who are discouraging you from legislating your morality are typically just leftists that don't like the potential influence you have on the culture. They want to bully you into retreating by saying you're a bad person by trying to legislate your morality with the hopes that once you retreat, 
they can legislate their morality instead. So that's what's really going on. Sam has just obviously thought this through, and he's honest about the fact that this really is a debate, not over whether morality should be legislated, but whose morality is better. And what Sam is saying is that Christian morality is better than pagan morality, which if you know anything about history is objectively true. And so we're just preferring that. We're just kind of jumping, fast forwarding through this this nonsense debate about over about how nobody's going to legislate the morality. We're going to maintain moral neutrality yeah. in the government school system, which of course cannot exist. There's no such thing as moral really, neutrality. Really, the only way that there can exist a society that doesn't legislate some kind of morality is complete and total anarchy. Because you're going to, it, at the bare minimum, even well, if the only law that you have on the books is don't murder someone, you're legislating morality. You well, know, yeah, even already. anarchy is morality. Anarchy is basically taking the position yeah. that it is morally wrong for one person to impose their will upon someone else, even for the benefit of the community. So anarchy, exactly. though it's lawless, still is moral. Exactly. And you you have essentially you have two two sides, right? There's there's Christian morality and anti-Christian morality, which are at, at loggerheads. One of those, uh, Christian morality, respects certain boundaries and respects certain certain moral codes, whether it has or doesn't have power. The other one is going to do anything within its power, moral or otherwise, in order to gain more power. And so it's simply a matter of which do you want to have the power, the one that's going to respect you and your human dignity, or the one that is going to do whatever it can to take more power. And this really is relevant to the education debate because yeah. um, every parent and frankly, every student needs to understand that you're never going to walk into a moral neutral environment. You are everywhere you go. And, and sometimes it will be more aggressive and sometimes it will be less aggressive. And thank God there are still educators that create space for people to have differences of opinion and they give an, an honest hearing to different people. And this doesn't mean that you have to agree with all of your teachers about everything, that every one of your educators has to share your theology. Um, there, there are better and worse ways to be an educator that gives a chance for people with a diverse set of backgrounds and perspectives and ideas, uh, space to all learn together. And in the fact that we do have different ideas, we can sharpen each other and we can learn from each other. So it isn't this idea that I'm, I'm only going to go to a classroom where everybody thinks exactly like me. That's a tough way to actually learn something because uh, you do need to be exposed. Um, it, by definition, education requires you to be exposed to things you either uh, disagree with or don't know about. And by virtue of that friction, you're going to become uh, smarter than you were uh, yesterday. But this idea that secularism is moral neutrality and all that religious nonsense is propaganda and dogma. Um, you need to quickly disabuse yourself of that if you have, to this point, been uh, abused of that and and then and move on <laughs> into recognizing that neutrality doesn't exist. It's not an expectation. So I'm going to recognize wherever I put my kids in this conversation, it is going to be in an environment that is acting on them in a moral way. You cannot avoid that. Yeah. Which So which count goes, that cost. Which goes to that idea of critical thinking that we were talking about. You know, it, because you have a, a, at the university level, you are you are more likely to be exposed to things that really are going to test that critical thinking. 
you need to have that critical thinking formed and cultivated early on. That's that's why things like uh, programs like classical education, that's one of the great goods that classical education achieves is forming that critical thinking that, that's uh, it's so necessary. I mean, it really is no, no pun intended critical uh, in order to have that that critical thinking capacity, because it will be tested at some point. And you're going to you're going to need to have that cultivated, finely honed, well shaped, and deeply embedded into your thought process if you're going to survive. Basically, uh, if you're going to even just hold on to your own morality, much less you know promote or explain it or or share you know Christian truth with anybody else. Right. You know? And and you the goal for that. education. The goal for education for parents is not to protect their children from every idea that we disagree with, but to prepare them exactly. for those moments and so they can handle that well. But we also need to understand exactly. the process of development that is real uh, cognitively and emotionally that six, when you're six years old, when you're in second grade, that is not the time to learn how to be a critical thinker. Those those minds cannot entertain abstract thoughts. All they want to do is please the authority figure in front of them and get a snack. That's where they're at emotionally. That's where they're at cognitively. And you have to recognize that. You cannot send your six-year-old in to be a missionary. They might have innocent, sincere, very real faith. They are not prepared to go to war intellectually or spiritually with somebody who is committed to taking away their faith. Now, by the time they're 18, 19, or 20, if you've done a good job as a parent, now they're ready to go to war. And they can handle that. Exactly. You can handle things when you're in college as an adult. Even then, you got to be careful. But it's possible. But when they're six, seven, eight years old, it's not possible. So don't try this idea that my child is a missionary. No, your child is not a missionary. Your child is not equipped to be a missionary by God's design and grace. Did not that's not the season of their life. And of course, they can they can tell their friends about Jesus in very sweet and innocent ways. But they are not prepared to go up against the infrastructure of uh, of professional education and win. They're not going to win that battle. And so we should not set our kids up in a way that is really destined to fail, where we are telling ourselves, actually, they're going to go be a force of good in this really dark, evil, hostile environment, uh, when all of the data now shows that the real impact uh, for those kids at that um, in those environments is going to be a negative for them. Exactly. Which goes which goes to that idea of are you retreating or are you not? You know, you're you're not retreating. You are simply taking your children under your own care. You are simply saying, I'm going to shape and prepare them to go out into the world, to go out into. I'm not saying, of course, you know, keep the kid in the basement, you know, and no friends. You know, every kid gets his own cubicle. You can't talk to your siblings. I mean, you you need to have, you know, some kind of which, of course, you'll get through, you know, things like church. Uh, you know, your, your church community, if you're in like a homeschool co-op or a homeschool group, which is usually a really good idea. Um, but what I, all that I am saying is that shaping a child and preparing your child, especially with the idea of those critical thinking skills, it's not retreating. That's your job as a parent is to take care of your child up yeah. until, you know, uh, whatever, 200 years ago or something. Very few people actually went to a school outside of like a university. The children were raised at home. 
children were schooled at home. Even through most of American history, children were largely, not entirely, but largely schooled at home or, or you know, very nearby. You, you could walk to the schoolhouse from your front door, you know, uh, and it was maybe 12 kids to a full school, not just a graduating class. Um, this idea of, of not retreating, but taking your children and preparing them, you know, it, the idea of, it, you know, retreat is like a, almost a military term, you know, if you think but of that it. that is those, the key those, word. Yeah, the, the, yeah. It's the training, uh, what many would describe as training or as retreating is actually just the preparation for the real battle. It's just doing it at a time and in a exactly. place and in a manner where you can, you have a reasonable expectation of success. Now, some people I have seen exactly. try to retreat in like a, just like abandon the world. Let's go hide in our holes and pretend nothing else is happening. There is a way to do that in a retreatist mentality where we're trying to create a bubble that you can't ever successfully maintain. And in the process of creating the bubble, you don't prepare your kids for the real world that they need to be in, engaged in. Exactly. But just because you don't in, throw your kid to the wolves, the first chance that you get when they're five years old um, does not mean you're retreating. It very well could be the wisdom of, I know how God made children. I know what they're prepared for and when they're prepared for it. We're going to make sure that whenever we send them into the world, they're prepared for it. And we're going to do it in doses that they can handle. So they they develop an immunity to that culture and they don't learn to love that culture. You've got to be exposed to it. You've got to know what it is so you can deal with it. But if it goes, if we just throw you in there, um, you're going to get the same infection and it's going to overcome you too. Exactly. It's not retreating. It, it is that that sense of training. I was just talking to my uh, fiance about this when we were talking about how we intend to educate our children. And there's that fine line that you have to walk. There's that balance that you have to find uh, as far as the the sort of what you might think of as uh, kind of pejoratively as the isolationist aspect of it and the the helpful, fruitful socializing aspect of it. You know, I mean, first of all, hopefully, you know, you can have many children. You know, I, I, my fiance and I hope to have many children, certainly. And so automatically there's friends. <laughs> We've made friends for you guys. But beyond that, you know, you, you go out, you go to, you know, your church community, you know, church picnic, you know, after, after Sunday service, you know, you socializing right there, family. You know, I mean, my 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 children will spend time with, you know, my brother's children, you know, family. And then you've got the idea of like the like I said, the homeschool co-ops and stuff. So even if you are to take what, again, pejoratively could be viewed as more of an isolationist approach, you, you still have ways that your your child is communicating with and developing necessary skills, not just, you know, critical thinking, but developing social skills, learning how to interact with other human beings, what is and isn't appropriate, learning, you know, how to treat other people with virtue, with charity, with modesty, with humility, you know, uh, all those things are are important. But they're also the the kind of counter argument, right? The the whole you know, I'm going to homeschool my kids. Oh my gosh, you don't want them to grow up to be socially well-adjusted? Are are your kids growing up to be socially well-adjusted? Like when, when I see the, the kids, you know, who, who go to the classroom with the cat ears, you know, and, and identify as a cat and just meow on the floor, you know, on like TikTok channels or whatever. Is that socially well-adjusted? Because I don't want well, my kids to... <laughs> 
the most depressed generation of all time, right? We're dealing with Sam and Gen yeah. Z is, I mean, so if that's socially well-adjusted, um, we've got real problems. So, the, the, we've got big it, problems. you know, there's the whole saying that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But if it is broke, let's do something different. And, and, and yeah. we're certainly there at this point. And, and in fairness, there's a lot going on there. It isn't just about a specific school or, or, or teacher, um, but there is a lot uh, that is worth critiquing, that is worth changing, that is worth looking differently at. And at the very least for parents, you can't just do what's always been done because we know that's not good for your kids. And we've seen tons of evidence of that. Sam, we're out of time for today. I don't even, I mean, I, we talked about education. There was a bunch of stuff I thought we might get to that we didn't. So uh, we'll have to do this again another time, but really appreciate you stepping on. And again, welcome to the Washington Stand team. Uh, and friends, you can see what Sam is writing on a, I don't know if it's every day, but it's several times a week at WashingtonStand.com. And of course, there's lots of other great uh, contributors there. So Sam, thanks for being uh, with us today. And we look forward to next time. Thanks very much for having me on. And friends, we thank you uh, for joining us for this conversation. As always, uh, your reviews and your willingness to share this helps us reach more people. So go ahead and do that wherever it is that you find your podcast. Uh, we, of course, will be back with you next time with more opportunities to learn how to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ in this crazy, zany world that we occupy. And we look forward to that next time. My name is Joseph Backholm, and this has been Outstanding. Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview.